This episode of The Outside Interview is brought to you by Ministry of Supply, makers of performance clothes for the modern workday. You do all sorts of stuff in a dress shirt, but most dress shirts are built like you just stand at your desk all day. They get all bunchy and weird even just sitting down. But Ministry of Supply redesigned the dress shirt with your actual workday in mind, putting stretch in the places you stretch, sweat-wicking fibers in the places you sweat, and odor-reducing coffee bean fibers in all the places you spill coffee. Their slim-cut shirts are actually slim-cut. Their collars stay stiff and don't need ironing. And they cut their buttonholes with lasers. Actually, a lot of shirts are cut with lasers. The process is more efficient and eliminates waste. I just wanted to use that sound. Ministry of Supply. Work clothes that look good, smell good, travel well, and keep the sound effects people on their toes. Visit ministryofsupply.com outside for 15% off your first purchase. Or visit a store in Boston, San Francisco, or Washington, D.C. Mention the show for the same discount. From Outside Magazine and PRX, this is the Outside Interview. I'm just going to test your guys' mics. With Chris Katz. There's an article in the current issue of Outside, and that's August 2016 for those of you listening in the future, titled Skull on a Stake. And it's about following migrants through one of the densest, most inhospitable jungles on the planet. It's a remarkable piece, both for the story it tells about the hardships these people endured, but also for its timeliness. You know, we don't directly engage with, you know, the sort of the hot button issues of the day unless there's a fundamental outside story at its core. And that's what that that there was here. There was an expedition to one of the most dangerous places in the world, a, a really hardcore adventure at the center of this um, that just happened to also shine a light on a huge issue that people are talking about, especially in this election cycle. The writer is Jason Motla, a longtime war correspondent who's now moved on from war to cover other human tragedies usually in far-flung places and somewhat miserable conditions. This wasn't a green writer pitching something that was a little out of, you know, that he would be a little out of his depth. We knew that he was somebody who, would, if he was going to pitch this, he was going to do everything he could to, to manage the logistics on the front end to make sure that it was um, as airtight as, as, as can be. Um, of course, there's a lot of contingencies that you just can't plan for. Here are some things they did plan for. Snakebite, heat stroke, dehydration, robbery, kidnapping, and ransom. The risk assessment document ran 47 pages. But when they got to Columbia and started interviewing people on their way to the U.S., it turned out that most had no idea what they were about to do. Their risk assessment documents would have been zero pages. You know, Jason and, and um, the photographers with him had spent months preparing for this journey, and um, the guys they were traveling through with on foot I had no idea what they were about to contend with. Outside's editor-in-chief, Chris Kyes, talked to Jason about the piece and how it fits into the rest of his career covering conflict. Let's let's talk a little bit about the assignment. I mean, um, so you went to one of the most dangerous regions in the world, and before we talk about the trip itself, you know, what is the Darien Gap, and how did you become interested in it? Yeah, well, Darien Gap was a place I'd read about as a boy, and always kind of fascinated me. This 10,000 square mile no man's land between Colombia and Panama, and it's foiled any attempt to tame it in over the years, centuries really, since the Spanish first showed up. They had a, a colony 
and um, ultimately fled because they just they couldn't handle the the conditions. There was a scourge of malaria and um, hostility in the jungle that ultimately drove them out. And so it became this sort of bolt hole for criminals, outlaws, runaway slaves, uh, you name it. And I mean, it's just it's just one of the fiercest, densest jungles in the world. It's become kind of a hideout for a lot of dodgy groups, uh, the FARC rebels in Colombia, some of the paramilitary rivals that they used to battle, which have since evolved into drug trafficking gangs. And a lot of drugs moved through there, a lot of weapons, uh, and more recently, people. It's become this unlikely route for migrants coming from all over the world who are flying primarily to South America um, from as far as Asia, West Africa, Syria, Afghanistan, but also a lot of Cubans who until recently could travel very easily to, to Ecuador and now are going through to Guyana. Why are they starting there? Why, why go to South America first? Well, it's gotten a lot trickier, you know, to, to get to the United States um, uh, as immigration rules have become um, more rigid. Um, a lot of the traditional pathways uh, are, are kind of drying up. So this route has sort of organically evolved as uh, a back door. What started as a relative trickle uh, has grown into, you know, a river of people. Uh, we're talking, you know, as many as twenty, twenty-five thousand people a year coming through there. Though those numbers are hard to to verify. I mean, those are what you know are on the books uh, in Panama, but you know, it could be many more that that are not documented. So we don't know exactly what the scale of the traffic is, but we know it's it's high. And this just struck me as emblematic of the migration story at its most extreme. You know, we hear a lot about people crossing the, the Mediterranean or the Sahara before that. I had done quite a bit of work on um, Rohingya refugees fleeing these, what amount of concentration camps in Western Burma in boats to Thailand and Malaysia and getting caught up in smuggling rings and all the perils along that route. But this just struck me as, as something you know of a different order and uh, I couldn't believe, I mean, the incongruity you know of having such a far-flung motley group of people taking this route, uh, it seemed to me that it would be an incredible story and that it really needed to be told from the ground. So I, I remember when the story was first pitched, when it, when it first came in from you, and I guess it was about a year ago. I'm wondering, at that point, did you still think you were going to be able to pull it off? I mean, it took an, an enormous amount of legwork just to get the expedition on the ground. Yeah, it was a lot of prep. And, you know, first and foremost, we needed to try and get the blessing of the FARC, who, you know, are the real shot callers in that part of the Darien. And um, that took some months to arrange. Uh, I had the, the good luck of making contact with Carlos Villon, the Chilean photographer who shot the pictures for the, the story. I'd seen his work online. He's one of the, the few journalists, photographers who had done any meaningful work in around the Darien. And I thought, you know, he'd at least be a good source of intel ahead of the story. And we grabbed a beer. And within minutes, I knew I had to do the trip with Carlos, just given his experience in the region, his contacts with the FARC. He's, you know, covered the FARC for more than a decade. And so, you know, he could make contact with the um, officers in Havana. 
So explain what, what FARC's permission means. You know, if, if you or I were just to show up in the Darien Gap and, and, and go for a walk, what, what are we risking? Risking a lot. Um, you know, the, the FARC uh, have very lucrative operations there. Um, it's not sort of the heartland of their territory, but it's one of their, their fronts. And, you know, a lot of smuggling going on there of all kinds. Um, they're also, you know, until recently, I'd say they've been more paranoid um, just be- because of, you know, the DEA and, you know, U.S. and Plan Columbia. Um, you know, they've been at odds with the government for more than 50 years. And so, you know, a lot of suspicions and those things tend to, to amplify when you're so cut off and, you know, isolated as they are. Um, and, you know, this is illustrated in the case of this this backpacker that went through a couple of years ago and he you know, didn't have any contacts on the ground. He was a pretty seasoned traveler uh, from Sweden, um, but just uh, was kind of winging it. And he took the route that we took uh, you know, without prior approval. He had a GPS device and some other things that raised some suspicion and was ultimately executed. We found out you know, years later that the FARC had, had, had executed him in the jungle uh, on suspicion of, of being a spy. So you can't take these things very lightly, you know, no matter what kind of experience you've got there and, and, and who you know, really. Yeah, wow. Um, you get there to, you know, you start on the Columbia side and in a town called Turbo. And what was your plan? The plan was kind of to have no plan at that point. Uh, we had to make contact with um, sort of the, the FARC liaison, so even to get to the FARC, and that was actually this guy, Elber's daughter who came to meet us and uh, we didn't really know you know what the instructions would be so we just had to wait and we finally linked up with her and she said we had to go to this town to meet her father uh, about a day down the river. We initially took a a larger boat to um, a town called uh, Rio Sucio on the Atrato River and that was a little dicey because that area, there's um, a lot of the, the, the paramilitary groups, the, the Orbanos and their ilk are, are pretty strong. And so we had to really keep a, a low profile. But they had sent uh, another boat, smaller boat, um, that was manned by Elber's, one of his sons, to pick us up there. And that brought us to this town, Domingo Do, where the FARC holds sway. I mean, there were no gunmen in the village when we turned up. Um, but the FARC does sort of come and go in the area and, and you know, is the de facto power in that, that part of the, the Darien. And all this time you're, you're looking to hook up with migrants, but you haven't seen any taking the overland route yet. Yeah, it was a bit of a, of a fishing trip. I mean, we did encounter migrants in Turbo. Um, you know, we saw them in the streets. There were Haitians, uh, West Africans. We wound up Finding this this hotel where a bunch of them were holed up, you know, eight ten to a room. Uh, none of them really wanted to speak with us. They were quite paranoid and understandably about you know having their cover blown and you know, us getting in the way of their plans. And it was still a fishing trip, you know, from there. Um, you know, these migrant routes they they shift like sands. And uh, you know, while we were out there, um, they uh, closed the border um, on the Panamanian side, and so. You know, we didn't know what that would mean for the migrant traffic, but we suspected that it would compel some to reroute, you know, with the help of smugglers further inland to some of these backdoor routes, uh, thinking that, you know, that would be an alternative to the coastal crossing on the Caribbean side. And, you know, it was a bet, and we waited 
four or five days uh, with nothing, but finally they they turned up one day on the river. Yeah, describe that moment. It's a pretty incredible um, scene where um, you discover them and 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 they see you and aren't exactly uh, excited to to communicate with you. Yeah, it was a surreal moment. We were pissed off, uh, just kind of fed up. You know, we were stuck in this village and not sure, you know, if anyone was coming or how long we'd have to wait. And we had gone to see the FARC kind of to kill time. They'd said they'd give us an interview. And so we went to a, a tributary of the Kakarika and it was a slog. We were hacking our way through all these mangroves and there was spiders and hot sun and just not fun. And um, we get there and they tell us that, oh, we can't do the interview because we don't have our uniforms with us. It's probably bullshit, and they said they're going to come back here tomorrow, but I don't really believe them. And the bottom line is they just didn't want to talk to us. And, you know, we said, hey, you know, just what does it matter? You know, what we can, we can, you know, hide your face or shoot behind you or any number of things. And they said, well, no, of course we don't want to hide. That would look like we have, you know, we have something we're ashamed of. And so we didn't know if they were just BSing us or what the deal was. But in any case, there was there was no interview. And uh, so we you know, had to get back reluctantly into the boat, head back to Bihau. And, you know, we're just kind of cursing up a storm. And then, you know, our guide said he, he actually smelled migrants. And we thought he was messing with us. And um, we round a bend and, and there they were. They were uneasy. Understandably, um, not sure you know, who we were, and um, there was this whole sort of charade in the beginning where they were trying to pass themselves off as as tourists. So you know, feigning like, real real casual attitude and laughing and um, kind of throwing their feet up in the boat and all this. And you know, I, I tried to explain that I was a journalist uh, as best I could, but you know, none of these guys really spoke much English. Um, and, you know, I, I failed miserably at, at Bengali. I'd spent a few months working there, just having a hard time getting through, and they still wouldn't budge. You know, they were just tourists taking this ridiculous route to, to Panama, and they were sticking to their story. But, you know, this only lasted for, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes, and then sort of the fear overwhelmed them. And... Um, there were tears and, 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 you know, just desperate pleas for help. And, you know, they're explaining all their injuries, how many hours they've been walking, days without food and sleep. And it was very dramatic. And you know, we just tried to reassure them, yeah, we're not here to, to interfere in any way or, you know, rob you. A lot of these guys have been robbed along the way by authorities, by people in the street, and there's just nothing you can do. You help, eh? I help. Yeah, yeah. we help. We get some rest, yeah. food, yeah. medicine, yeah. and then we can talk. And, um, you know, we tried to set their mind at rest. And, you know, a lot of them didn't even want to walk at this point. They were just beat. They had been slogging it through the, the swamp for, you know, 10, 12 hours. And so um, we had to convince them, just, you know, let's, let's keep moving. Let's get in the boat and get to this village. And, you know, you can rest and, you know, we'll go from there. And, you know, once we got there, they finally saw that we weren't trying to, to cause them any harm and you know, we, were, we were there doing a job and it was to tell their story. And who was leading them through at this point? 
There was a, a coyote a smuggler. Uh, he was actually a guy from Bihau, that village where we, we spent the night. And, um, you know, they, they sort of do it, uh, they're different links in the chain. So one guy will bring them from Turbo to Puente America, which is where they were coming from. That's right at the, the elbow of the Trato River and the Kakarika River, which turns north into the Darien. And then these guys from Bihau, they make a living going down to Puente America and then shuttling them up to Bihau and then, you know, perhaps further on into the Darien. And so this was a local guy in Bihau who was just covering that leg of the trip. One of my favorite moments in the piece uh, around this time uh, where one of the migrants kind of asks what uh, I think a lot of people would, would, would want to ask, and it's essentially, why are you here, he asks you. And, and um, y- your answer to him is, um, as you say, you know, feels a little hollow, but in the, in the story you go into your own um, experience and, and, and talk about your father. Now, he was a, an immigrant to the U.S. as well, right? That's right. Yeah, he came from Iran. His brothers had made their way over before and, and um, you know, started lives for themselves here. And he was trying to, to come over um, as a student, and he just couldn't get a visa. And so they hatched this plan whereby he would book a ticket that transited through the United States on its way to Canada, uh, in this case, uh, via JFK to uh, New York to Toronto. And as they were approaching JFK, he, he faked an illness. And it was enough to get him taken off the plane. And while he was being ferried to this clinic, he jumped out of the vehicle. And his brothers, who were in Washington, the D.C. area, had prearranged a car to go up and, and pick him up. And he, he hopped into this vehicle and um, drove south down the 95. And, and that was how he got into the to the U.S. Wow. Uh, you know, I, I think just... When I was thinking about this story, it was it was pretty profound um, that you know that I could be in a position to to go and even you know explore an issue like this. I don't think it's really an accident. I think, especially in this very fraught climate we have now in this country, the anti-immigrant sentiments are so burning so hot that um, you know it's just something that I felt like I needed to dig into more you know more more deeply and, and find a way to to punch through you know a lot of the the bluster and and get back to like what's really happening. You know, these are, this is everyone's story in the United States. We, whether it's our father or our ancestors of all at some point made this journey, we're a nation of immigrants and let's get beyond the numbers and this sort of abstraction and look at, you know, what individuals are doing on the ground to, you know, live up to their aspirations and and find dignity in their lives. And um, I, I think a lot of what was was driving me forward to do this story um, emanates from from my father and his experience. Yeah, that, let's let's get back to the this. You guys are in the town of B. Is it Bihau? In Bihau, yeah. In Bihau, and um, and from here you're you're going to be setting off on foot, and it's at this point what 60 miles give or take yeah yeah you know maps are really really not very helpful in this area yeah and uh you know even the the gps the sat phone that we had uh would just drop their signal and so we you know it, it it's it's kind of an imprecise science at this point so a few hours into the trek uh which is just sounds like an unbelievable slog and uh, through bogs and swamp and, and um, wait, as you say, a very small river. 
What are the conditions of the migrants at this point? They've already been, you know, hiking uh, for the previous couple of days. Um, what are you thinking in terms of their chances of making it through here? Well, there were a couple in the group that were real red flags, and we just weren't sure if they were going to be able to pull through. I mean, as a whole, none of them had any idea what they were getting into. Not one person in the party of 20 that we ended up traveling with had heard of the Darien Gap. And there they are, right in the belly of it. I mean, imagine that. Um, and, and again, you know, as I said in the story, it's sort of a case where maybe ignorance is bliss. You know, you just got to get one foot in front of the other and, and follow the guy ahead of you and hope for the best. So they know, they know they're taking this route from South America. Yeah. But they have no idea that they're going to encounter this, this one obstacle on the way. Yeah, the most they had heard was that you know, there's this jungle that we have to, to get through to Panama. But I think for so many, it was just like, let's get the hell out of Colombia. We've had a really rough time. We've been shaken down you know, left and right. Um, this, you know, I think to a man, said the migrants said that, that it was the worst leg of their trip so far. And so they were eager to, eager to move on and get to, to Panama, which you know, had a reputation for being quite humanitarian with, with migrants. And and so first day, describe what what you guys are doing. Well, we had to get back in the boat and continue further up river, um, and then it sort of reached a point where the river was practically running dry, and um, we got out. And you know the, the trekking started in earnest, and we passed through uh, a village, and this was uh, the village where this uh, Swedish backpacker had apparently been uh, executed not far from by the FARC a couple of years ago, and Carlos knew of this, and so, you know, we were very discreet about the fact that we were journalists and our cameras and so on, and just tried to blend in with the group. Um, and from there, we, we hit the trail, and uh, it was a few hours um, through pretty moderate jungle uh, before we started, you know, hit the, the double and triple canopy and, and the really steep climbing and already some of the members of the group were were really flagging um one of the bengali guys was who was sick on the river and we were really worried about to begin with was just desperately trying to to sell or to uh, pay a, somebody else to carry his bag and you know, these guys have almost nothing on them but he, he was offering twenty dollars um to anyone who would carry his bag and ultimately there were no takers um, and so just had to start dumping things. And that's really what you're seeing is just all this flotsam, these objects that, you know, people are discarding along the way. And in the beginning, you know, it's, it's sort of the obvious stuff, uh, coats, sweaters, uh, cookie wrappers, hydration salts, Red Bull cans and so on. But as the, the trip wears on, wears on, you start to see, you know, more important items, backpacks, um, you know, footwear, uh, the things that you would think to be essential or closely held that people are just suddenly scuttling because it's just unbearably hot and heavy. And you point out you're, you guys are a pretty big target. I mean, you've got cash, you've got a lot of uh, expensive equipment with you. How much is that fear of being a target in the back of your mind? Very real. I mean, we knew we were we were big fat whales out there, um, you know, carrying all that cash and, and the gear and um, you know, and that again is where having that that fart contact was was really uh, essential, um, at least giving us some peace of mind as we went forward. And you know, it was it was tricky because 
you know, you know your target. You've got all these things that you know are, are very sought after. I mean, you don't you know want to seem sort of too passive, you know, and at the mercy of these people. And you know, they they're trying to chisel, and you know, we'd have this thing where they'd they'd raise our rates. Said to pay pay 150 US more. Yeah. So 150 US in pesos. What is that? And then they want all the money, you know, on the first day of the trip, and no, no, mass, mass. You know, what, what leverage are you giving up? I, know I just you don't will. like to I keep know. getting fucked. No, know? it's not fucked. They're, yeah. they're money hungry like you, like know, me. You know, know. when We're you deal with a magazine, it's like, yeah. hey. But at the same time, you don't want to um, create a conflict that flares up because, you know, things could get violent and, and you know, maybe there's no, no backing down. And so sort of this, this push-pull, you know, asserting yourself in a way where you're not going to be taken advantage of, but also knowing that, you know, by design, you're going to be taken advantage of to a degree. How much of your shit have I put up with on this trip? I listened to you, bitch. Let me vent a little bit, huh? No, it's okay. Vent. More. You know what I'm saying? And you only have so much, much leverage out there. So it was kind of this finesse uh, dynamic as far as how we were dealing with these, these guys, these hustlers, you know, who, who make a living doing this. You, 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 we all love fucking money. So why not give them some extra if they take us to the bio? And you, meanwhile, had done months of study about, you know, to get as much information about what you were going to encounter on this trek. Was it was it what you expected, or was it somehow worse, or about about where you expected? It was a lot of what I expected. Um, in the doing of it, you know, it always feels worse. I, I've spent some time in the jungle. We'd done a project for Nat Geo in uh, in Thailand tracking uh, timber poachers from Cambodia crossing the border into national parks and chopping down a lot of red timbers, rosewood. And that was pretty, pretty tough. Those guys were fit and they moved fast, you know, down these trails. And um, so, you know, I had some sense of, of what I was getting into, but, you know, there are always these things that you, you know, instantly regret. Uh, for me, you know, let's start with the basics, footwear. I had, you know, Done a lot of uh, investigating. You know, what what are the what's the optimal footwear for these conditions? And I think it would have been pretty easy if not for the risk of snake bite. You wanted to have something that would go up close to your knees. So I end up springing for these fancy, really French garden boots. Uh, you know, with a Vibram sole rubber, um, which was a mistake. Uh, you know, these things because they were lined uh, absorbed all this water, sweat, and so you know every step there's there's that extra weight sloshing around in my boot, and you know your foot can't get a grip, and so it's sliding around, and you're walking on all these slick root systems and you know mud, and you're just waiting for that you know ankle to pop, which fortunately never happened. But um, I, if I were to do it all again, I think I'd say to hell with snake bite. You know, I'm gonna take some good hiking boots and just. Get, and just risk it. Uh, but no, otherwise, you know, we, we were pretty well equipped. I mean, I'd say over-equipped. I'd never carry this much gear. You know, I like to move fast and loose. But yeah, we had a snake bike, a refrigerated snake bike kit that we never wound up using. Uh, you know, a lot of bit extra stuff because it was uh, also a documentary shoot. So batteries were key. You know, there were no power sources in the Darien. So we had to carry all that, uh, you know, extra camera gear, some food, a lot of water, um, and you know, normally I like to, to sort of hunt my own stuff, but um, it, you know, it necessitated having a couple of porters to help lighten the load so we could at least try and make some observations and do some filming along the way when all you really want to do is just sort of keep your head down and you know, trudge forward. And you spend one night there, and 
and I guess everybody's just plopped on the ground for the evening. Is that right? Yeah, we brought uh, these hammocks uh, with with mosquito nets. Fantastic. Uh, Skeeter beaters, they're called. And so we just rigged those up in the trees and I had a pretty good night's sleep. But a lot of the migrants, you know, um, well, all the migrants were out in the open. And so they, they bedded down on the big leaves, banana leaves, created sort of makeshift mattresses on the ground and huge fire, generate as much smoke as they could to keep the the mosquitoes and bats away. But I think it was a really rough night for them. And one of the group was actually up in a tree uh, when I woke up the <laughs> next morning, wide awake, like he had been up all night swatting. Did any of them offer you money for your hammock? <laughs> mm. No, but I was very liberal with the bug juice, and I, we brought mm-hmm. a lot of that, which, I would, yeah, you can never bring enough. But, um, yeah, once we, we pulled that out, you know, it, or the moment I would bring it out, I'd have, like, a gaggle of, of people around, and I would just give everybody a head-to-toe, and uh, that gave them some relief. So the next day, you're, you're anticipating you're going to make it to Panama, and you decide to split up as a group because it was important to make it so that so, if you were caught, who was caught with who was, was very important. We got to tell them, look, man, if the police catch you with these guys, these guys go to jail. So here is fine. You can go along like 15 minutes, and we're going to be always behind. But and that, that was tricky, that, um, you know, our, our guides were really worried about being seen anywhere near this group of migrants. Um, the migrants, for their part, are very distrustful, you know, about going on their own deeper into this jungle. They want somebody ahead of them who you know, normally knows their way. And so we initially tried to, to get the migrants to go forward along the trail. Yeah, we got a lot. We have to, we'll set it up, but yeah, we let them go ahead a little bit. Yeah. Made it to the border. Uh, that didn't work because we kept catching up to them. You know, we're moving pretty fast and our guides are like mountain goats tearing through here. So uh, we finally said, look, you know, let them hang back. Um, the guides will go forward and I was going to go forward with them because they had our bags. We didn't want them running off with our bags. And um, then the group would, would we'd, we'd go ahead to the river, the Paya River. Uh, which was cl- close enough to the village from there, we were told that we could make it on our own, drop everything, and the guides would go back home, and we would go forward with the migrants behind us. Um, that got a little complicated because while we were, were heading forward, the uh, guides left me behind, and I was doing my best to keep up, but uh, they took off, and I didn't know what their, their game was. And uh, at one point, kind of got lost and was very disoriented, and had to double back on the trail and fortunately ran into some migrants um, and got back on track. And then we eventually caught up with the guides. And at that point, they had claimed they had seen uh, members of the center front, the Panamanian border guard, um, on a hill further ahead and that they needed to, to leave us. And you know, this was plausible because we had heard rotor thumps, uh, the sounds of helicopters in the jungle as we were trekking um, pretty nearby, and so we thought, okay, that, that makes sense. Um, so we parted company and continued on, uh, but didn't see the center front. They were gone. And how many more miles are, are, are you traveling at this point? Hard to say. So we've been hiking for the last two hours with all of our bags. and I mean, they had said just a matter water. of minutes, and it was hours. They told us the river was all but 20 minutes away. 
not seeing it. We're still up at altitude, so we're at a bit of a fix right now. We gotta get to a water source one way or the other. We've got iodine, at least we can purify it, but we need to get something in our system because we're all getting a little dizzy. Uh, so yeah, they didn't shoot straight with us on that account, but it, it was you know still I'd say before noon at that point, and we wound up running into the center front uh, around maybe five five thirty six in the afternoon. So it was another half day's hiking through pretty pretty tough terrain. It was all uphill. So the most tragic. The heartbreaking part of the piece is uh, you, you're finally intercepted by the Centerfort um, Panamanian authorities, and they turn the migrants back and say, you can't enter. you gotta, you got to turn around. Yeah, that was brutal. I mean, after all that, uh, you know, we finally caught up with the group, and, um, you know, they're being held at gunpoint by the, the Centerfront, and we weren't allowed to, to talk to them anymore. Um, even to say goodbye to these folks, and uh, we were taken to their their base, and uh, the major, the commander for the region said, you know, they're going to be sent back into the jungle. There's nothing we can do. It's a, a presidential order, and it's being enforced. And I thought, you know, maybe this is just the line that he feels like he has to tell us because we're journalists, and you know, maybe something else would emerge, but. Um, he was unyielding, and we went on a couple of days later and talked to the chief of the center front in Panama City, and he confirmed as much. And they were sent, I guess, escorted 30 minutes or so back up the trail, I think given a little bit of food and water and um, left to their own devices. And, you know, I, I told him in Paya that you know, I thought that could be essentially a death sentence for some of these folks. Uh, one of the, the, the women in the group, the only woman, was, was really in a bad way. And um, it was just in, kind of impossible to imagine going back the way we came after all that. How, how do you deal with that kind of feeling as a journalist and you know, having the privilege of being able to, to move on and, and having gone through this experience with the migrants and trying to document what they're doing, but ultimately you're not experiencing exactly their reality, you have your own reality as a journalist. It's hard and it's familiar. Uh, you know, this is something I grappled with a lot over the years, um, working in conflict areas, you know, that, um, you know, that you sort of have that knowledge in the back of your head always that you've got that way out, you know, that you've got that ticket out. And um, sometimes the experiences are so intense and personal that, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to, to reconcile and there's a burden of guilt you carry with you. And I think for me, that would often be aggravated if I went directly from, you know, one end to the other, from, you know, covering the war to, you know, being back in a, in a modern city or, or back home and just sort of picking up, you know, where I left off. And so often for me, what I have to do is, kind of transition out and I'd, you know, go to a third city and just spend a few days uh, on my own, just kind of processing and setting myself up to, you know, to return home. And, um, you know, you, you never can really shake that feeling. Um, but I think, you know, the, the real thing is, is just, is not being you know, in any way handicapped by that, but just remembering like, you know, 
you, you, have, you have the choice to stay home, but you can also choose to, to go out, you know, and risk for the right reasons and try and tell these kinds of stories. And, you know, if you can do that, um, maybe the burden isn't, isn't quite so heavy. Do you think, does any of this, the kinds of stories and the kind of work and the kind of experiences you've had take a toll on you? And I ask, I've asked this to a lot of journalists who do the kind of work you do. And, um, you know, there's, there seems to be a growing awareness among, you know, some war correspondents about uh, PTSD. And um, do you feel like there's been a toll of, of, of sort of the, the regular, the regularity to which you put yourself in harm's way? There's definitely a toll. I mean, I, I didn't dive into conflict work or this you know, kind of extreme reporting um, early on. You know, I, I had a sort of a healthy respect for it, I think, and I you know, developed a certain proficiency and, and a comfort level and gradually went deeper and deeper. And yeah, you do it long enough and uh, intensely enough, and it does start to take a toll. And you know, I had been covering the war in Afghanistan uh, back when it was a big story for for quite a while. And, you know, I had to check out, um, you know, I was getting to a place where I was just increasingly, uh, sort of less in touch with myself, um, making some reckless decisions. And I think, uh, my sort of disengaging the point where I, you know, I just wasn't even doing my job the way, you know, I, I should have been, uh, just with, with the same level of, of sensitivity and, and focus that you need to do that kind of work. And, so I left and you know took a took a few years, years off and um, have only been back to Afghanistan actually once since then. Um, did cover some other other conflicts in Asia and elsewhere, but yeah, I really needed to just to take time out for myself and um, kind of recover. And uh, there were some things that I needed to address in my personal life that I had been <clears throat> a fugitive from for a long time, and um, yeah, you just kind of have to stop running at some point and let it all catch up to you and. It was a very difficult time, uh, but it was a necessary time. And I think it's, you know, it was work that I needed to do then so I could could live really authentically and move forward and not be, you know, um, somehow hostage to a lot of these, these forces that were exerting themselves on me. And, you know, having done that, I think I've, I've sort of re vamped a lot of the way I do this work. Um, you know, I don't spend huge periods of open-ended time um, in harm's way, in conflict zones. I try to be a lot more sober about the risks I'm taking, doing the homework. The stakes are much higher. You know, I have a daughter now and um, a steady partner. And so, you know, it, it's really on me to be very clear-eyed about what I'm getting into. And, you know, once everything is dialed in, um, you know, working with the right team, you know, with the best folks I can find going out, doing the projects and, and coming home. So it sounds like that, that pause has sort of shaped the direction of your career a little bit since and in, in that you're more, I guess, selective about the kinds of assignments you'll take and asking yourself sort of the question of, am I running away here from something or am I actually, is this an assignment that feels vital to me? Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things as, as journalists, especially if you're, you're covering war, is uh, it can be a very easy cover, right? You know, it's this, this idea like, oh, you're going out and, you know, giving a voice to voiceless and all those things. And I think people can hide behind that. And, um, you know, war is, is a great place to, to lose yourself. 
And, you know, I think now having been through that experience and you know, the, the depression and some of the loss that, that came on my personal life, um, I just, you can't kid yourself anymore. You, you know, you, you lose those illusions and, um, you know, it, it just doesn't fly. That's not to say, you know, there aren't qualified risks that are worth taking. And I felt very strongly about this trip, you know, that it had never been done. Um, that this migration story is really the story of our time and it's only, you know, gathering uh, all over the world and that this, for so many reasons, was a facet that needed to be uh, illuminated. And um, I just you know, I had this feeling in my gut that, you know, there, there was a way to, to pull it off and, you know, it obviously took a long time and there were a lot of variables, but in the end we were able to, to will it into shape. Mm. And, you know, this is you know, obviously not a piece of advocacy journalism. Um, it doesn't really have a point of view, but I'm curious what what you hope people take away from reading about this experience, why you want to document this. I hope that this story helps people see these migrants as people, maybe even a reflection of themselves at some point. I think a lot of that's gotten lost um, in this country, and um, I think it's dishonest. You know, I think it's disingenuous. And, you know, my, my goal was to, I felt if I could be on the ground with people at this moment of extreme vulnerability and stress, that something might surface in that passage that is, strikes a chord with readers, with the audience, um, that transcends, you know, race, uh, ethnicity, nationality, you know, all these constructs that we hang on to. And, um, just strike the most human chord possible and um, maybe help them reconsider their, their viewpoints on um, migration or political refugees, at least, you know, complicate things a little bit and create some indelible images um, of, of just what people are willing to do, you know, to, to live a better life and find some dignity. And I think if we're honest, you know, we, we, we should all be able to relate to that at some level. Jason Motla, talking with Chris Guys. The Outside Interview is produced by me, Peter Figright, and Robbie Carver, with original music and a little bit of mixing in documentary film footage by Robbie. Chris Kyes asked all the questions. Thanks to everyone who reviewed the show on iTunes these last two weeks. As far as I can tell, every single one of you gave us five stars, which is humbling and great. Thank you, your five-star listeners. If you prefer sharing thoughts about the show in a non-public forum, we now have an official email address. Write to us with comments, story ideas, and suggestions for people you want Chris to interview at podcast at outsidemag.com. We'd love to hear from you. <laughs>